1 Corinthians 3 verses 12 to 13 read, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Hello, and welcome back to Think This Way. This is the podcast of Faith Bible Church. As always, I am, I guess, just one of your hosts, Pastor Bryce, and I have with me Pastor Elder Bob. Bob, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me, Bryce. You know, that's one of the joys of working in a plurality of eldership, is I was born yesterday, and you were not. (laughs) And just the asset that that is to have some wisdom behind you. Uh, it makes a huge difference. I think I speak for the whole church, honestly, in saying that. And today's episode specifically, I wanted to talk about with you, partly for that reason, because you've been through a lot of life and you've seen a lot of things. And we're talking about today, the local church has been our quarterly focus. And there are some things in scripture that are just crystal clear about the local church, at least as far as we're concerned. And we've talked a lot about those things. But today we're talking about something that might not be as immediately clear in reading scripture. It's a bit of an application of wisdom, and it comes down to what our attitude should be when it comes to quote-unquote church growth. And I mean church growth both in terms of numbers, more people attending any given church. I also mean in terms of maturity. And so really, we're not, this is not an episode about how you make church growth happen. It's just a question of how should we think of church growth? Anyone in a local church does think about church growth. You walk in and you look at the seats and they're all full and you go, wow, there's a lot of people here and you have thoughts about that. Or you come on a Sunday and there's lots of empty seats and you go, should we be growing faster or something like that? So we're just talking about the wisdom of how we should think of church growth. And for us, of course, that's here at Faith Bible. Well, that applies anyway. Anywhere. I wanted to start this discussion by pointing out something that's unique to our setting today because we've been preceded by what's called the church growth movement. This is before my time, so I will date myself. I was born in the 90s. But the church growth movement really had its peak in the 70s and 80s, maybe. So this is before me, but for those who are not familiar with the church growth movement, um, it is a movement of churches here in the United States especially, although it had some missiology involved, so other countries are involved, but it really focused here on the United States where there were pastors and teachers who were trying to figure out how you can grow a church numerically very rapidly. And many of these had evangelistic zeal, you know, not all shallow reasons, but just wanting to reach as many people as possible. And so they approached it, you know, previously you would approach that by saying, let's pray and let's fast and let's... But the approach in the church growth movement of the 70s and 80s was, how can we use sociological research together with certain pragmatic approaches to how people function, how can we use those things to our advantage to reach larger numbers of people? Sometimes this church growth movement and what's come from it is called seeker-sensitive, 
the idea of how can we be sensitive to seekers in our culture and thus get them through the doors. Some of the examples of churches that were and some still are prominent in the church growth movement would be Robert Schuller and the Crystal Cathedral that he led, Rick Warren at Saddleback Church, and Bill Hybels at Willow Creek Community Church, among many others. Before we really critique this, because I'm going to leave that to the wiser among us, between you and me, Bob, to critique it, meaning you, you know, just one observation. It is not uncommon for there to be a sense that churches driven by this model, they do get very wide. Many people get involved, but oftentimes there's not a great depth to it. One example I think of is there's a woman attending here, Our Lady's Bible Study, I don't even know actually who she was, but I had heard this story from someone whom I also forget now, so I don't know how this got to me. Anyways, somebody said that there was a woman attending here, and they were learning about election, uh, presumably in Ephesians. And this woman went back to her church, which I believe had more of a kind of church growth model here, and spoke with her pastor and said, why have I never heard about election before? Here it is in Ephesians. I've never heard this. And her pastor's response was, I agree with that. That is a true doctrine that's taught in the Bible, but we don't talk about that here. So since I don't know the person and I don't know the church, I don't have a strong judgment to pass on someone. But that is sometimes the feeling you can get from seeker-sensitive church growth movement type churches where we avoid difficult doctrines, even if they're in scripture, because it's not sensitive to the seeker. So that's my only little introductory critique, but I do want to turn this over now to you, Bob, and say, what are some of the dangers or downsides of a seeker-sensitive model of the local church? Bryce, let me first drop back a bit to do a little history lesson that I think will be germane to us getting a handle on this as we move forward, because it's a very big subject. And one that is very important to me as it is to you. And it it needs to be important to all of us here at Faith Bible Church. Uh, I will get into that later. The church has always been subject to cultural shifts. We saw that in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Church was plagued by all sorts of things from the culture creeping into the church, or not even creeping, coming in in a full gallop. Uh, but even in the Old Testament, you know, much of Leviticus was written to warn those Jews to not accommodate pagan cultures, to not take on their behaviors, and they did. And then God would punish them by turning them over to a people more evil than they were and sometimes for a long period of time, and then they'd repent and walk faithfully with the Lord for a while. And then the culture would have its impact on them, and there they'd go again. It's just a cycle that they went through. And we see that in the church today. And this is, if there is a point where I have an advantage over you in this, I was born in 1947, and that date is critical because... I am at the vanguard. My, my generation was at the vanguard, the leading edge of the post-war baby boomers, and we had a huge effect on the culture. 
and on the church. And that's where I kind of want to go with this, at least to start with, to help us understand. My generation, as soon as we started coming of age in the early to mid-60s, we rebelled against every kind of authority. We wanted to throw off authority. And why that came into us, I don't know for sure, but it happened. And in the process of this, in particular, the church had to be eliminated in order to make room for the sexual licentiousness of the group of people that I grew up with, and particularly when we, be, we came of college age. So you couldn't go to church and participate in the kind of things that we wanted to participate in. You know, that was all brought on by uh, the crown prince of sexual licentiousness, uh, Hugh Hefner. There were others, but it was an epidemic, if you will, in the culture at that time. So church attendance plummeted. And in the process, most of the mainline churches fell. And they started worrying, what are we going to do to get people back in? And they had very, very good intentions. But we know the old saying about good intentions, where they can lead. And they led to some very, very bad places. And what the church started questioning then, what's wrong with our method or our message or both? So they started compromising those things in an attempt to get people back in. I don't think there was anything the church could have done at that time to change that. It was a tsunami of a, of a cultural shift. I remember in 1970, I played in the United States Amateur Championship in Portland, Oregon. And after the tournament was over, I drove down the West Coast to L.A. to fly home. This was in 1970. There were literally thousands of hippies hitchhiking up that coastal highway to get to Portland. It was frightening. There were so many of them. You're afraid you're going to run over them. And they went on to Seattle, too. Some of them stayed in San Francisco. That was where most of them came from, from that intersection of Haight and Ashbury. And they had all these radical ideas about transforming society and overthrowing things. It was frightening to see it. I wasn't a Christian at that time, but I was a conservative. And it really bothered me because I thought, what's going to come of all this? Now we see what's come of it, haven't we? Well, let's now define what a seeker is and what what the church thought it was, incorrectly, was that they are unbelievers, people outside the church, and they're searching for something, for meaning, for significance in their lives, or whatever. And the misguided logic of church leaders at that point caused them to restructure church services to accommodate these people. This was nothing new. Thomas Aquinas recognized this back in 1250. And he said, these people are not seekers of God. They are seekers of the benefits of God without seeking God himself. So should old Aquinas be forgot and never brought to mind? I don't think so. 
what Aquinas thought in those days is true today, and we know from Romans chapter 3 that it is true. It's a, it's a reiteration of three uh, Old Testament scriptures and Psalms, uh, 14, 15, Ecclesiastes 7. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. So the church now is changing the way it worships God to accommodate people who don't even believe in God and certainly don't seek him. And it has undermined the church ever since. The church has not shaken that off. They have compromised both the method and the message in trying to attract people to come in. And it has resulted in churches that have no depth. I heard John MacArthur say one time that what you use to attract people, that's what you're going to have to feed them. So that is where this whole entertainment uh, methodology in churches. I was at a large church here in Evansville just a couple of years ago for a service, and at some point the house lights went down, the light show came on, and a fog machine and professional entertainers doing the singing. Uh, that is not even a poor imitation of what a worship service should be. It's the people of God worshiping God is what that's about. Us singing, not us watching someone else sing. So it has created huge, huge problems in the, in the church, mostly just a very shallow understanding of Scripture. You know, a, uh, almost an apology for Scripture. And, and it has created a, a group of people out there that I think the, the, the term for them today, it's moralistic therapeutic deism. And the idea is, first of all, that people are good. And the idea is be nice, treat other people nice, and if you want something, pray to God and he'll take care of you. I mean, God at that point, there's no need for Jesus because you're nice people. There's, God becomes some kind of a idolatrous Santa Claus that you can pull out of your pocket and get things fixed. And that's what the, much of the church has become today, Bryce. It's heartbreaking to see it. And we were talking just before this podcast about a, a Christian book I read recently that is one of probably the most popular among married Christians in America today. And it's written by a Christian. Uh, it's not particularly Christian as a book, but my main thought about the book, it has some wisdom in it, but my main thought about it was, as, if I just thought of this book as a secular book, it's a pretty good secular book on marriage. But when I think of it as a Christian book, it's one of the worst, you know? <laughs> where's the Bible? Where's God? Where's sin? Where's Jesus? Where's anything, you know? And I feel that way with some of the shallowness of American evangelicalism where it's hard not to recognize some of the good. It's like that going to this church and there's kind of a rock show happening. If you were actually at a rock show, that'd be wonderful. <laughs> you know, if this was a Christian concert, cool. You know, that's, that's, but the issue is it's a church. It's a church. So what are we doing here <laughs> where the culture has invaded into what the church is and made it into something that it's not?
I appreciate that history, that background too, is very helpful, especially for those of us born yesterday. Well, it helps us to know why mm. we have we did the things we did. Uh, they were misguided, but their intentions were good. Yeah, even some of the, um, I won't pretend to be a expert of the history here, but even some of the ideas of making a big church that's run basically like a business, uh, you know, at the time the church growth movement was exploding, there was that kind of, I mean, it was a very American thing. I mean, to, to get things bigger, larger, consumerism, more intake, bigger buildings, bigger things, very much part of the current of the culture. And then, like you said, just invading into the church and going, how big can we make this church? It's not just the church, but there is a fascination with bigness yeah. in, in our world. How, how, how big a crowd does uh, Alabama and Georgia draw to a football game? Uh, but the church, when, it's, when it becomes a primary motivation of the church to make itself large in numbers, we're missing the boat. And, and what the church did and, and continues to do in that, in order to be relevant, the church has compromised things that actually make it relevant. So the church has become irrelevant in assuming that just because we have Gen Xers and Boomers and all these different uh, kinds of people that we the message has to be changed. No, man's basic need is still the same. Man is a sinner in need of a Savior. But when you teach people that they're basically good, why do they need a Savior? Jesus becomes irrelevant at that point. There's not something that needs to be changed just because we boomers wouldn't go to church. Well said. You know, I'm going to kind of switch gears here for a second as we've been talking about and critiquing this side of things, <clears throat> churches that are growing large by compromising their message. I mean, that's the key issue and method as well. But there's the key issue. Let me switch over to the other side here and acknowledge now it is possible for a church to not grow large, but to stay very small. And it's possible for that to happen and not reach people. And it's possible for it to be in part the church's fault. So I do want to acknowledge the other side because church growth, you know, a lot of those leading that are saying, we should grow, we should reach people, we need to reach people. They're just doing it the wrong way. And they're critiquing smaller churches that are dwindling and dying because they're not reaching people. And I do want to acknowledge, first of all, it is possible for a church, as, as we're critiquing the church growth model, it's possible for a church not to grow numerically, and it's possible for that to be in part at least their fault. I want to give some examples of that. So for example, a church can become a social club, and it doesn't grow because there's kind of this elite membership of a certain number of families in that church. That's bad, so that's not good. Or again, it's possible for a church to be a kind of outdated church. And what I mean is, not that their message is a problem. Our message is outdated, it's 2,000 years old. So we're gonna stick with our message. But I mean, maybe practical things where new people are not feeling welcome simply because there's no website, you know, in a day of websites. Or, or they may be, entirely different culturally from the whole culture around them in very clear, obvious ways. And they're just not going to change any of that. And I mean that in neutral things, not in our 
regulative principle of how we do church, but just in neutral things, your website, your dress, your expectations of people. You're a church like out of the 50s, and here we are today. That can be a problem as well. You can have a church that's kind of a sleeping church where there's just no energy to it. You know, nobody's really excited to be there and it doesn't grow. Or you can have a church that just goes from scandal to scandal so it doesn't grow. So we do want to acknowledge over here that while we disagree with the church growth model, where you change your message and method to reach more people and get big, we do acknowledge that a church can stay small for the wrong reasons. And that just leads me to a question I wanted to ask you, Bob, which is here we are at Faith Bible Church, and we are growing numerically right now. We're not growing at the rate of the church church growth model. We're not a mega church, and we're not moving that direction. We are growing. But my question is, how do we judge? How do we judge our growth as a local church? You know, I just listed ways that we could not grow, and it'd be our fault. It'd be bad. But we also don't want to go with the church growth model over here. So how do we judge if we're growing at a good rate, if we're healthy in how we think about church growth? How do we judge ourselves in this? I think the the initial way we judge ourselves is by uh, how deep we're getting our people. Uh, churches were scolded for being milk-fed when you should be teachers by this time. And by having the expectation that we're going to help our congregation grow in depth, I think we will naturally grow in numbers also. Uh, the, the reformers had an idea about, there was a term they gave to it called the regulative principles of uh, worship. And it was built around the ordinary means of worship, uh, attention to the Bible, Scripture, prayer, sacraments. And I'm going to add to that the body of Christ itself. I think as long as we stick with solid expository preaching and teaching, uh, an emphasis on the importance of the sacraments and what they mean, uh, the way we read scripture every week, and things like the Thanksgiving prayer time and monthly prayer times and the way you preach from the pulpit, it's, it's beautiful. And I think those things, without some great big effort, without calling some uh, team in from outside the church to teach us some church growth thing that will help us grow in numbers, the church will naturally do that. And in the process of that, uh, our people need to understand the incredible thing that God gives us called evangelism. And people get really weighted down by that, uh, that they have this onerous responsibility to be a, a witness for Jesus Christ. On the contrary, what a wonderful thing that God would allow us to participate with him in the salvation of another human being. What an opportunity. And I think that's something our people need to learn, that the evangelism and helping the church grow in numbers, it's a responsibility of our, of our people here, but it's, it's more than that. It is an, a God-given opportunity that he would include us. He said he wouldn't have to. He can make a rock cry out for him. But instead, he's chosen us, 
What a wonderful blessing that is. I mean, what I hear you advocating are really all of the basic elements of Christianity that you find in the New Testament. And and if we want to avoid bad reasons for not growing, we need to do those things with excellence. You know, so emphasizing the sacraments, baptism, communion, making those a big deal. We should be doing that. We should be doing those. There shouldn't be an afterthought. We should be emphasizing those, the preaching of God's word, keeping that central evangelism. These are things, if you went throughout 2,000 years of church history, I mean, there were differences at times, but those were always the main things, all of these things. And that's why I think it's different to say, let's do those things with excellence, because if someone comes to your church and everything's just shabby, and it doesn't have to be, you know, we're not, if you're in a context, third world country, and there's poverty, and you're doing the best you can, wonderful. But if you're in our context, and people come in, and the building is unkempt, and it looks like we haven't prepared for the music for the worship service, I just stand up there, I haven't thought about what I'm going to preach, I just kind of soliloquize about something, and people probably aren't going to come back, and I don't blame them. But it's different to say, let's do with excellence the main things God has called the church to do in Scripture. That's different than saying, I don't know that our neighbors are interested in those main things, so let's minimize those and let's maximize other things not clear in the New Testament that I think our neighbors would like. And that brings in the fog machine and the rock music and stuff. That's not Paul. You know, that's not New Testament stuff. That, that's not any of the central Christian stuff. That's something different that may be popular in the culture right now. I think that, to me, in my mind, that's part of the difference of what we're talking about here. When we say church growth, church growth is pragmatic because it will keep the essential elements, but it won't emphasize them. It'll kind of minimize them, adapt them, change them, or just relegate them over here because they might not be popular. You know, like election as a doctrine. We're not going to emphasize that. We're going to put that over here. And instead, we'll do community involvement, which is good. But that's because that's what people want right now. And so we can grow. Does that sound, I mean, am I making sense? Am I thinking this through rightly? Yes, I think you are. I think for us, we've got to understand what's our responsibility in this and what isn't our responsibility. We are supposed to plant. We are supposed to water. But the growth always is God. And if we do a good job of doing these ordinary means of grace things, worshiping God the way he wants to be worshiped, God will create the increase. We have to trust him for that. And it could be just due to demographics somewhere. There could be a church that's going to be small. There may be a church. John MacArthur's churches went to 8,000 people, I think, every week come to worship there. So be it. I don't think he takes any pride in that. You know, and even the problem in bigness, how do you how do you effectively minister to people when the church gets there gets to be a point where it's very difficult. You know, I was an elder in a very large church. It's hard to know what's going on with people. Church discipline is difficult in that. Uh just mentoring people in maturity. I mean, it, it those churches almost have to really have a huge commitment to small groups for that to work. And it sometimes people they're not interested in that in, in a big church. They can come be there for an hour, go home, and that's the end of it. So there's some some real liabilities that come with bigness, mm-hmm. uh, where you just can't 
give people the individual attention that they need. And I, I really appreciated, on that note, what you had said about in the 60s. What could the church have done differently to reach more people? Nothing faithfully. I don't think they could have. Yeah. It, so there are times where we need to make an adjustment, you know, but there are also times where it's just the context of when you live. That's why I think, even as we talk about this, like the size of a church, my hero in the faith is Charles Spurgeon, 1800s yeah. London. He had a very large church. So many people wanted to hear him. They had to rent out Surrey Music Gardens. You know, I mean, they just had to rent out these massive secular arenas to fit everyone in there. His church was huge and vibrant. Say, well, is that church growth movement type stuff? Well, you know what Spurgeon and his church were mainly emphasizing? Scripture, evangelism, the weekly church prayer gathering. Those were the things. Communion meant so much to Spurgeon. There was no gimmick. You're like There was no rock music. Actually, Spurgeon led the music with a hymn book. I think just himself. He just sang it, and they all sang. There was no gimmick to it, other than, I guess, his skill in preaching in a sense. But it was really because the Spirit was working a revival. And Spurgeon just did the faithful things you do. But because it was London, which was heavily populated, and a revival was taking place, then they saw large numbers of people where if you put Spurgeon in a very small location at a time that there's not revival, he would have had a small church and he would have been just as faithful. So that's more our concern. It wouldn't be hard to draw a big crowd, but it's dishonoring to God to do those gimmicky things to make that happen. It's God that we want to rely on to make these things happen. It's God we rely on for sanctification, for individual growth. And it's God we rely on to make us grow in numbers. And there's scripture to back all that up. God's interested in numbers. I think the parable of the talents would be an example of that. Mm -hmm. You know, he expects us to do well with the gifts he's given us, to grow deep, not be milk-fed. But at the same time, he expects a return on it. He's given us the gifts to do it. But we do that by being obedient to what he says to do, not by what all church growth experts say and come up with gimmicks and all that stuff to make people come in or downgrading the gospel that uh, people won't come if they're hearing that they're sinners. No, that's what they're coming for because that's the deepest need they have is to be forgiven for their sins, to be justified Mm -hmm. to a holy God. So we trust God in those things. I mean, it reminds you of Whitfield during the Great Awakening who is coming over here to the U.S., George Whitfield, he's preaching to massive numbers of people. But you may remember it was Benjamin yep. Franklin <laughs> in his diary because he was an admirer. Franklin was not a believer, but he was an admirer of Whitfield, just his oratory and that he could bellow out that much sound. But but Franklin wrote to a friend or in his diary or something, just like, it's a marvel that so many people come to hear that they are as sinful and evil as beasts. <laughs> <laughs> that's what Whitfield was preaching, just the gospel, you know. But it was the gospel at a time of revival, and so many people responded. And Whitfield would have been faithful in a time without revival to preach that gospel and just wouldn't have seen the same response. Yeah, and, and we saw, uh, we have seen in church history, there were a lot of people that were, what was that That oh, a book, uh, 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy or something Oh, is this Piper or what is yeah, this one? Yeah, Piper's yeah, yeah. Book. I mean, there were a lot of them that, that struggled yeah. and suffered and didn't mm-hmm. see huge straight uh, church growth. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the rule. I think the rule should be we should expect to see the church grow. 
maybe not a great way to put this, but we have somewhat a greater control of creating mature Christians than we have in creating numbers. We can be sure that people are taught well. That's what we do in your sermons, the expository preaching, which has been thrown out the door in in the popular church today. Uh, just sermons that uh, tickle the ears. You know, that we're in a time where man won't endure sound doctrine. We're still in the in the after effects of that revolution of the '60s and '70s, uh, so it's it's not that that's gone. It's still here, mm-hmm. but we don't. We're not about trying to scratch their itching ears with a bunch of nonsense. Yeah. In the in the uh, mistaken idea of trying to create church growth, what creates church growth is ordinary means of grace, mm-hmm. primarily the solid. expository preaching of the Word. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with topical sermons from time to time, but the meat of the church is in expository preaching. How else can you ever comprehensively preach through what the Bible says? I'm I'm thrilled. We're back in the Old Testament with 1 Samuel and the great teaching in that. I mean, look look what happened with Hophni and Phinehas when they didn't worship correctly. Let's go back to to, uh, uh, Aaron's sons. What, what happened to them when they didn't worship properly? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't see that happening today, but I think we see the lack of church growth mm-hmm. due to the fact that the churches are not faithfully preaching the Word of God. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think the answer, it, it seems so complicated, and churches get all anxious about this. Well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do The answer is simple. Faithfully preach and teach the Word of God. Faithfully uh, administer the sacraments, prayer, and I would say the body of Christ itself is a huge thing going forward. Mm-hmm. And, and there needs, does need to be an emphasis on personal evangelism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it is a good... That's why topical preaching, like you said, the Bible doesn't say you can't do that. But that is much more open to the possibility of being conformed to the culture yes. than verse by verse. I mean, and it's a good example in 1 Samuel because, you know, we're in the early chapters of 1 Samuel. We've dealt with polygamy, competition between polygamist wives. We've dealt with Hannah praising God for tearing down the proud, you know, bringing them low. And now we've just been in a long series of judgments against Eli's house for the corrupt priesthood in Shiloh. And we did two sermons on the man of God at the end of chapter 2 who's rebuking. And those are harsh. There's not going to be an old man in your house. People are going to die. Your sons are going to die. No. And we're going into chapter 3, and it has the famous passage about the call of Samuel. You know, And that is one that we would emphasize today, like, wow, the call, God calls us. But you know, when God called Samuel, it was to just tell him again, Eli's house is about to be obliterated. You know, Ears are going to be tickled. You know, but it's going to be because of how intense this judgment is. And I feel like that's a good example where if I was preaching topically, I wouldn't probably touch on judgment that much. But since we are going verse by verse, this is such a significant emphasis of Scripture, then we have to talk about it. So I do think that verse by verse preaching does help keep the whole church, as we're trying to be excellent in doing the main things that we're called to do, it does help keep us from the pull that we all feel to conform to the culture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just a compilation of some things that I wrote down yeah. uh, last week when I was studying for this time. 
and certainly Justin has covered a number of these things in Mark Deaver's the Nine Marks Church thing. Yeah. Uh, but there are earmarks of a growing church, a godly church. It will be characterized by love for expository preaching of the Bible. Number one, uh, passion for worship. Not for entertainment, to worship myself. I, I, I can worship by myself well, but I worship so much better when I'm in a body of believers worshiping together. It, it builds me up. Uh, delight in the truth. Embracing of the gospel proper. You know, the Spirit's work uh, of conversion, a life of godliness, robust family religion, biblical evangelism, biblical discipleship, biblical discipline, biblical church membership, mutual accountability, biblical leadership, and a desire to evangelize the world, our missions program. I'm so proud of the fact that we are so dedicated to foreign missions here. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I would almost... And I am going to. I kind of use this as a bit of a template mm. to apply to us. Are we, is this what we look like? Are these things we really value here? And I think we do a pretty good job of that. Can we do better? Of course we can. I think one concern that we should always have as elders here, Bryce, we should always be alert to something seeping in under the door, like carbon monoxide. That wolf that gets his nose in the door of bad orthodoxy or bad orthopraxy. And it won't come in rushing in. If it comes in, it'll creep in. And I think we have to be very alert to protect the church against that kind of thing that ultimately ends up... Uh, very disappointing to God, at least. That's very well said. Well, may God protect us. And this is a good fitting conclusion to this year of podcasts and this quarter. I think, depending on how Jonna edits this, we're about 40 minutes in, and I feel like we got a lot more we could say here, we do. <laughs> to be honest with you. Here, let me just... I, I do have a few questions here toward the end of this that I don't want to skip, and we may have kind of covered some of this ground already, but one of the one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you know, it seems like as we talk about church growth, yes, there are times of revival, there are exceptions. In those times, like the Great Awakening, so many thousands. I even thought of Pentecost when I was preparing mm -hmm. for this. They preached and then thousands <laughs> were added to the church, you know. So that looks like church growth movement, but it wasn't. It was just the gospel. And so that's awesome. That happens. But that's the exception. That's the exception. And this is a this is kind of an application of wisdom, I suppose. But it seems to me, and you can tell me what you think, Bob, that most long-lasting healthy growth in a local church happens in the slow and steady way rather than the burst of enthusiasm, but happens just in a slow and steady way. Is that preferable? Is that what we're aiming for when we're thinking of a growth of, say, Faith Bible? slow and steady. Is that, am I right in thinking that produces a lot of the long-term health or what? What do you think? This is strictly my opinion. Perfect. I, I think that is absolutely 
the model for the church. I think there are exceptions to it. And I, I think those exceptions could be for some church somewhere that just explodes, that mm -hmm. God grants that. I think there might be times in the life of a slow-moving church where we see a, 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 a burst of evangelism that happens and there are a lot of people that come on board. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think if we really dedicate ourselves to seeing that our people here become deep in the faith, deep in a love for these things that I've just enumerated, uh, but particularly the expository preaching. But, but, most importantly, it's good that we grow in knowledge and understanding. But we know the Scripture's clear about that. There is a danger in that because knowledge puffs up. Knowledge can make us arrogant. And that is probably the, the chief concern we would have over a biblically solid, doctrinally solid church that we would become proud. Our primary objective, there are two. We need to grow in our love for God and grow in our love for other people. And then we have filled the first and second greatest com commandments. And let's let's while we're at it, let's fulfill the Great Commission and evangelize too. Mm -hmm. Both the world and the city of Evansville. Awesome. Well said. That's encouraging. Well, speaking of encouragement, this is my last question on this topic is, let's say there's someone here at Faith Bible Church, and we have seen some growth. I mean, we've seen a lot of growth in maturity. I mean, as, as elders, you get to watch that all the time. Mm -hmm. Praise God. And then we've seen some numerical growth. You see new faces around. But let's say there's someone here at church, and... They're wanting to see revival. They're wanting to see huge numbers. They're wanting to see the parking lot full and every seat filled, and they're longing for that. And as we see just a few new people here and there, they might be getting a little bit discouraged. Like, why aren't we growing as quickly as such and such a church at such and such a time, you know? How do we keep from getting discouraged if someone's struggling with those kinds of thoughts? Well, that's a, that's a tough question. Uh, people come into churches with all sorts of biases in their thinking about things. Now, I'm not saying the biases are necessarily wrong, but I think that I think we need to be content. We need to be content with work. If we're being faithful, we need we need to teach our people that rare jewel of Christian contentment. Uh, if if God has put us here to be a church of 250 or 300 people, which we're pretty close to that. You know, I particularly after the church split a few years ago, I mean, the first few Sundays, it was pretty barren in there. And it, it warms my heart to walk in there and see the fact that we have grown. We have grown, but it is slow and steady. And I think we should rejoice in that, not apologize for it. Yeah, well said. Well, as you're listening to this, like Bob said, we all come with our own biases. I don't know when you hear this, maybe on the one hand, you think we should just stay small. No more growth. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> Sometimes that's the attitude. Just stay the size that we are. Nobody else comes in. Let's close the ranks. Or you may be on the other side of things and think, why aren't we growing massively and quickly? What's our problem? Whatever you may have thought in the past, may God help us all now by his grace to think this way. Mm -hmm.